Hello, pod people. I'm DA, and welcome to Millennial Edition. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we have a special guest joining us, millennial professor and constitutional law scholar who was the former law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Aaron Tang is here with us, and he's going to delve into his New York Times essay entitled in quote, conservative hypocrisy makes its case at the Supreme Court, and he's going to walk us through the current impeachment of Donald Trump. As always, remember to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter to be a part of the discussion. Okay, so let's dive right in. Okay, so let's just start with you telling us about your impressive background and how you got on your journey into law, especially ultimately becoming an expert on a variety of law topics, including constitutional law. Sure, well, first of all, thank you uh, so much for having me, DA, and for all of your kind words in the introduction. So I think my journey into the law starts with being really lucky as a kid, having some great public school teachers where, where I grew up, sort of outside Cleveland, Ohio. My teachers, along with my parents, really encouraged me to pursue my passions. And those passions happened to include an interest in the law and in public policy, uh, probably for a kind of cliche reason. Uh, when I was growing up as a teenager, I really loved TV shows like The West Wing, legal dramas like The Practice. And so that's what I wanted to study in college. And once I got to college and then eventually in law school, I found that my interest in the law and public policy were confirmed as they were just deeply fascinating subjects, more or less just leading me to where I am now. And that's amazing. Now, you wrote a variety of scholarly articles that are listed in some of the most popular publications, including the Stanford and Vanderbilt Law Reviews, as well as in The Hill. But your most recent essay in the New York Times entitled, in quote, conservative hypocrisy makes its case at the Supreme Court, end quote, it caught my attention. And it will actually lead into discussions on the impeachment a little bit later. Because essentially what I took from this piece and what you are assessing is conservatives posing one legal argument in the past for a prior case and totally abandoning that line of reasoning on another case or when it is politically expedient to achieve a certain policy goal. And we are seeing that now during the impeachment hearings. Can you delve a little bit more into that and give us your assessment as to why you think that the GOP are using this strategy and what their end goal might be? Sure. Uh, so let me maybe start by giving an example uh, of the kind of hypocrisy that I'm talking about. So there's a big case in the Supreme Court this year involving the Second Amendment, uh, which guarantees the right to keep and bear arms, guns. Um, and a group of gun owners basically want the Supreme Court to expand that right, the right to bear arms, outside the home. Right? They want to basically stop blue states, blue cities like New York City, Chicago, from uh, enacting gun control measures that would protect public, protect public safety, uh, like limiting who can carry a gun in public, for example. Uh, gun owners want everybody to be able to carry a gun in public anyway. And one of the gun arguments that the gun owners are making in this case, which was argued about a week and a half ago, is that they, uh, they should have a particularly strong right to carry their guns to shooting ranges where they want to practice uh, because they say they have a constitutional right to train and practice with their guns. But the gun owners admit that the Constitution itself doesn't grant them a right to, quote, train with guns or practice with guns. It only grants them a right to keep and bear arms, right? To keep and, and have and use their guns. Right. And so they argue that the, you know, the right 
to keep and bear arms that's in the Constitution creates this implied right, which is like an unspoken and unenumerated right uh, in the Constitution to train with their guns also, because what's the point in having guns if you can't practice with them and use them? And that, you know, that's actually pretty logical. It's just pretty ironic. It's ironic because conservatives have argued for decades that there is no such thing as implied rights. There are no such thing as unspoken, unenumerated rights. If there is a right in the Constitution, it has to be written expressly in the Constitution itself. And so, for example, in the 2015 gay marriage case, uh, where five justices uh, voted to recognize a constitutional right to gay marriage. Four conservative justices dissented saying, whoa, 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 there's no, you know, the Constitution doesn't have the words, the right to marry, the right for same-sex couples to marry, and so therefore there ought not to be that kind of a right. Uh, if you go back four decades earlier, five conservatives held in a 1973 case that there's no implied right to an education uh, in, the, in the United States Constitution. So for the conservatives suddenly now to believe there is implied rights, there is such a thing as implied rights when it applies to guns, is what I I'm suggesting hypocritical. Now, you know, what's the GOP goal? You know, I'll be honest, I, I, I'm not so sure that this is a conservative or GOP only tactic. It's probably true that whomever is in power at a given moment is going to try to attain their preferred policy objectives through whatever means are necessary. So, you know, it's possible that if someday progressives are in power, have control of the courts, that, you know, they might fall victim to the same kind of reasoning. Only time will tell. But I think, you know, the basic idea is conservatives want the world to exist in an image that they want it to look like, and they're willing to, you know, pursue to that end at all costs. So your argument is not necessarily this is the GOP strategy. It's assessing that both parties or whatever parties have actually participated in this kind of hypocritical line of reasoning when it comes to issues with the court. Is that correct? I, I think that's probably right. It's hard to know. It's been such a long time, frankly, since liberals have really been able to count on the Supreme Court to further progressive aims. There have been moments when Justice Kennedy was the swing vote when he would put aside, he's a very conservative uh, person, and he would put aside you know, those principles, those views to, you know, for example, in the same-sex marriage case, but it's been very long time. So it's hard to really say, but, you know, I, I don't want people to think that this is a kind of criticism that's only levied or can be only be levied at conservatives. You know, hypocrisy is something that all people in power can fall victim to. And so what do you think the effects will be on our society, especially on our democratic processes with an application of law that shifts politically instead of impartially? Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid it's just going to be more of what we're seeing, which is an erosion of public confidence in our institutions, an erosion of public constitution confidence in the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, the legislature, Congress, and, and has been hypocritical for many, many years, right? Every battle that we see over judicial appointments raises the risk of hypocrisy. The it's like super stressful whenever super there's stressful, a change. Yeah. Oh my God. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's the worry if, if, you know, we don't have some elected officials who are willing to stand up and say, you know, we believe in this principle. And even if it leads to an outcome we don't like in this case, we're going to stick with it. If we, if we don't have that happen, you know, I worry about how much the public will trust our elected officials and our judiciary. And I can say just, you know, obviously we both are millennials. I think trust is very low at this point. What do you think? Uh, I think that's right. I'm afraid so too. I mean, every poll that Gallup conducts reveals, you know, lower and lower degrees of confidence in the president and Congress uh, and in our court. So yeah, we're, we're, we're not heading in a very good direction, DA. Right, which is, which is really distressing. But 
now let's let's get into the impeachment. And what I like to start to do, especially on these episodes, is I like to start with some definitions to make sure that we are all on the same page. What does it mean to be impeached? And who has the authority to do so? So just go ahead and, and explain the whole process on what is currently happening and what might possibly happen to Donald Trump. Sure. So the Constitution speaks to impeachment in three places that are relevant to what's happening with the president. And in all three places, it's clear that the word impeachment, if you're just looking at that word by itself on its definition, it just means to accuse someone of misconduct, right? So you could an, uh, cr make an ad analogy to an ordinary criminal trial. When somebody is prosecuted for committing a crime, what happens first is there's something called an indictment. And that's an accusation. And oftentimes somebody, a group of people called the grand jury meets and says, is there enough evidence for this indictment so that we can actually prosecute someone? And if the grand jury says yes, then you have an actual prosecution. And if there's a trial, you have another jury that sits and adjudicates whether the person is guilty of the crime. So the analogy here, although impeachment is civil in nature, it's not a criminal proceeding where no one's in the impeachment process trying to throw the president in jail. The act of impeachment is like indicting the wrongdoer. And then there would be a trial after that where the president, if impeached, would be put on trial and if convicted, only then would be he would he be removed from office, right? So uh, how does that work out in our constitutional system? Well, uh, Article One, Section Two of our Constitution says the House of Representatives has the sole power of impeachment, right? So they're the ones who can draft up these accusations that the president abused his power, or obstructed justice. That's where we are at this current moment in the process. The House is has drawn up a draft of two articles of impeachment. There will eventually be a vote, perhaps as early as next week, on whether to impeach the president, which the House can do with a majority vote, and. If those articles are approved in the House, which I think everybody expects they will be, given that the Democrats have a majority in the House, well, the next step is set forth in Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution that says the Senate shall have the sole power to try uh, all impeachments. So the Senate is like the actual jury in the criminal trial, right? And a two-thirds vote of all senators present would be needed to convict the president. And the last provision, I'm sorry, I've been going on for a while, but the last provision I'll mention is in Article 2, which is about the president. Article 2, Section 4 sets out the standard uh, that the House and Senate should apply, right? So it says the president may be impeached for, quote, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. No, that's absolutely thorough. And that was really, really helpful for us all kind of to just kind of understand like how it all works and what it all means. And, and I remember, I remember hearing the word impeachment, right? Because I think we were old enough to understand that that was what was happening when we were kids to pre the, to then President Clinton, right? That's, I think, our first introduction to impeachment. And I thought impeachment meant like, that was the process that someone got removed from office. So it's really, really kind of helpful to put everything into perspective. And so I, I just kind of have to ask, because I know that you've been following closely the case, do you believe that the evidence presented in the House impeachment hearings, do you believe that Donald Trump has indeed committed an impeachable offense? Sure. So uh, in my opinion, yes. Right. So let's we'll start with the facts and then we'll compare them against the legal standard in Article 2, Section 4. So in, in terms of facts, there's basically no dispute that the president did two things. He said, we will not give $400 million in aid to Ukraine. We will not have a formal White House visit that the Ukrainian president really wanted until the president of Ukraine announces an investigation that, that Ukraine is investigating basically the president's, at that point, chief political rival, uh, Joe Biden, uh, investing them on these sort of uh, bogus corruption charges involving his son. Right? So those are the facts. And the question is, does that count as treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors? 
And there's no question it is not treason, right? Treason actually means getting giving aid or comfort to an enemy. There's no reason to think that Ukraine or is an enemy of the United States, right? So anybody who's out there saying the president committed treason is just wrong. Yeah, uh, actually, you keep hearing that all the time. It's like he's treasonous. Yeah, that no, that's just flat wrong. That's not, you know, I'm no fan of the president's, but uh, but in no sense do I believe he's committed treason. Bribery is a closer question. Sort of the founding era understanding of bribery is the receipt of or the solicitation of something of personal value in exchange for some official act. And that kind of sounds like what the president's done. He's like, you know, I'm worried I'm going to lose the 2020 presidential election. So something that would be of personal value to me is if another country announces some bogus, even if it's, you know, an, an ultimately bogus, announces that my opponent is being investigated on corruption, that would be of personal value. And I'm not going to, and in order to get that, I'm going to exchange an official act, namely $400 million in foreign aid to Ukraine, a White House office visit. But even if that doesn't feel like bribe or sound like bribery to someone, it is almost certainly uh, an other high crime or misdemeanor warranting removal from office, right? And one way to show that is like, you know, a listener might say, well, you know, why would I listen to, to Professor Tang? He's obviously progressive, maybe he just has an ax to grind with Donald Trump. So let's try to take it out of the current political moment and say, imagine that we're in 2012. Imagine Barack Obama is running for re-election against Mitt Romney. Um, and suppose at that point in time that Barack Obama was actually losing, right? Polls are showing Mitt Romney's ahead by a couple points. And suppose Barack Obama were to say, gosh, you know, I, I, I need to get some dirt on Mitt Romney. What if I offer to pay another country? Let's, let's say China. What if I offer to pay China $400 million if China is willing to announce that it's investigating Mitt Romney for, I don't know, some corrupt business deal, right? Even though there's no evidence that that actually happened, right? If China announces this, maybe it's enough to like make Romney look bad and voters will vote for me, right? Can I pay money from the United States Treasury to another country to get it to lie to make political dirt on my rival so I'll win the election? And the question is, does anyone think that that would be okay? I certainly don't think it would be okay. And, you know, I voted for Not at all. Right. Not um, at all. <laughs> and I suspect Republicans wouldn't either, right? Or independents wouldn't think that was okay either. And if that's true, well, that's essentially what the uncontroverted facts indicate uh, President Trump did. So my question is, why do you think the founders left so much room with the statement high crimes and misdemeanors? What, like, what does that even mean? Yeah, that's a great question. If I had a good answer to that, you know, I'd probably be on TV a bunch. Uh, I mean, I think the, the closest, the best answer I can give you is the founders didn't know, right? They were pretty aware of the limits on their own knowledge. And they said, well, what could be the kind of thing that a president would do that is bad enough that we'd want them removed from office? Certainly treason, right? If the president's actually giving help to a, a, an enemy during a time of war, right? That's obviously something you can't have the president do. Bribery. It's an interesting choice that the, the founder said, well, if the president is selling official acts, right? Favors from the government in exchange for things of personal value to himself, we want him to remove. The best thing we can think of is other high crimes or misdemeanors. The founder's like, oh, that's a catch-all. There probably are other things that, the pre that a president could do. We don't know what they all are. There's a you know legal doctrine called nascitur associus, which is Latin for a thing should be known by understood, a term should be understood by its neighbors. Well, the phrase other high crime or misdemeanor should be understood next to its neighbors, which are the words treason and bribery in Article 2, Section 4. And so whatever other high crime or misdemeanor means, it probably ought to be something that, that is, you know, rises to the kind of level as bribery or treason and maybe shares that kind of flavor. Um, and that's why I think it's relevant that what the president it did is essentially bribery, if not actually bribery, right? He's asked a foreign country to give him something of value, dirt on his political rival, in exchange for U.S. taxpayer dollars. So going back to treason, what if 
evidence was presented that all of this not, was just not for the the re-election of Donald Trump for his personal gain, but what if it was also for the benefit of Russia? Would that amount to treason? I don't think so. I think there, and I have a colleague here uh, at the University of California Davis School of Law, Carlton Larson, who's writing a written book about treason, is the leading treason scholar in the nation. And my understanding is that when we, when the word treason is used, it, it may essentially be as narrow as, as giving aid or comfort to an enemy as in a country with which we are at war or if not a formal declaration war some kind of hostilities with and you know we have a, a obviously complicated relationship with russia russia interfered in the 2016 elections continues to try and interfere in our uh, democratic process and and that's you know that's not a good thing but we're not at war with russia we're not in any kind of hostilities with russia formally or even informally so i you know one could make an argument if there was more of a smoking gun case that what the president was doing was trying to just straight up benefit Russia. But uh, I'd be reluctant to throw throw around the word treason because it's such a, a significant weighty word. And so what part of the evidence presented makes the case for you solid? Does the GOP have any defense of Donald Trump's actions? And is is there any evidence that they presented that actually helps Donald Trump's case? Yeah, I mean, so that's what's really pretty interesting about this case. And it, it, it was true of the Clinton impeachment, too, is there's actually very little factual dispute. Like, you know, after some gruesome testimony uh, in the Lewinsky, with respect to the Monica Lewinsky scandal, like pretty much everybody knew what President Clinton did. He had an a, a adulterous affair with a White House intern and lied about it. Pretty much everybody who understands, agrees with the factual basis of what Donald Trump has done. The testimony of UN Ambassador Gordon Sondland is basically the smoking gun evidence here, right? Gordon, Ambassador Sondland was very much in the president's camp at the start of the affair, but he testified in front of the House that, you know, everybody knew, this was no secret, that president wanted to pressure Ukraine to make this bogus claim of an investigation to the Bidens in exchange for foreign aid and a White House visit, right? There's no denying that. There's, you know, multiple corroborating witnesses who say that this is this was understood to everybody. And so the president's defense is just, yeah, I did it, but so what, right? That's not impeachable. And presidents ought to be able to spend U.S. taxpayer dollars to give to foreign countries and have them lie about my political right our political rivals so that the existing president can stay in office that's that's basically the argument and that's ultimately a question for the u.s senate right so what is your response to people who say that it doesn't really matter just as what you said what trump did he's the president and the senate is never going to remove him from office he has the authority to do whatever he wants and whatever he wants to do from that seat is presidential what do you say to people when they say that to you yeah so i mean i think there are two answers one answer is just as like a description descriptive matter, like describing the state of the world, that's absolutely correct. People who say that are right as a matter of, you know, just real politics. All that matters in this case is what the Senate thinks. And many of the senators, Republican senators in particular, will approach this question from a political perspective of what's best for me, what's best for my chances of getting reelected, rather than a what's best for American society or American democracy perspective. But the other answer is like, you know, what should be the world that we live in? And I think that from that perspective, the answer is, well, gosh, it would be really nice if, this, if our Senate and our senators weren't so cynical, weren't so self-interested in their party or their own re-election. It would be really nice if some elected officials could put the country first, because if they don't, and if, as I think pretty much everybody expects, Donald Trump is acquitted in the Senate because there's very little chance of 20 Republican senators voting to remove him from office, to convict him, you know, the result is that there's this lesson to future presidents that, hey, this once unthinkable conduct is now okay, right? It's now okay 
okay moving forward for presidents, right? Suppose, you know, we have a, the next president is a President Joe Biden and the President Joe Biden wants to be reelected. It would be okay for him to spend a billion dollars, our taxpayer dollars, including Republican taxpayer dollars, to gin up these, you know, false accusations against political rivals to, to uh, ensure that, you know, he as a Democrat stays in office. And that's just a crazy world. Like, listen, I'm a Democrat, but I really don't want to live in that world. But that's the world, uh, the lesson that we'd be teaching elected officials if, in fact, the Senate doesn't remove him. And so I just kind of want to give you the last word. Um, what should our listeners take from this conversation? And especially for the millennial generation who just, with everything that they keep seeing, might be super disheartened. You know, what should they take from this conversation and the information that you've so eloquently provided to us? Sure. The only lesson I can offer is that when we vote, we need to think about the character of the people we vote for, not just what they think about the policies we care about or, you know, are they likely to win an election? We need to think about once they're in office, are they the kind of people who will choose not to do things that they might get away with, like, you know, paying off a foreign power to lie about a political opponent, right? If the Constitution's not going to stop them, if the Senate's not going to stop them from doing that, the only thing that's going to stop them is their internal character. And so I encourage listeners, I encourage myself as I think about the, you know, the candidates in the 2020 election, who is the person that I would trust most to do the right thing, even though the presidency has this tremendous power? Who's the president, who's the person who would be least likely to abuse that power? And it's only by, you know, that's the only way we can break this cycle, right? If we, if President Trump is succeeded by somebody who's just as power hungry and just as willing to break norms to keep himself in power, even if it's a Democrat, right, maybe that will lead to short term games for if you're a progressive, but it will continue to erode, I think, the sort of the, the foundation of, of what it means to live in a democratic society. And I, I couldn't agree more with those sentiments. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us and providing us with such an enlightening discussion. I've, I've definitely learned a lot and this is super beneficial. And I just want to thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of Millennial Edition. And I look forward to engaging with you all soon.